Okay, so I'm Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. I'm the Member of Parliament for Beaches East York. And because of everything going on, I wanted to get in touch with experts. I view myself, my role in this job as an advocate, I'm often I'm channeling smart people. And I thought, what better way working from home than to record conversations with those smart people that I often channel. And a number of constituents and Canadians have asked and written recently about invoking the Emergencies Act at the national level. And so today I'm having a conversation about the Emergencies Act with Craig Forsees. He's a professor at the University of Ottawa. He's an expert in national security law, recently published a chapter on emergency powers and laws in Canada. I actually came to know Craig's work as one of the principal authors and experts in the debate about Harper's C-51, draconian anti-terror legislation. He's also the host of the Intrepid podcast with Stephanie Carvin. And thanks for joining me today to talk about the Emergencies Act, Craig. Uh, thanks, Nate. Happy to be here. And so I have read the Emergencies Act. I, I understand some of the hesitation to invoke it because of a previous experience maybe with the War Measures Act and civil liberties concerns, and also because provinces obviously are invoking their own emergency legislation. And just today we saw Ontario has ordered the closure of all non-essential workplaces in the province pursuant to those emergency powers. At the same time, there are powers in the Emergencies Act that could be useful in this situation. Even the declaration of a national emergency by the federal government might be useful in and of itself. I, and we'll get to it, but I'm clearly in the camp of invoking the Emergencies Act. I wonder, you are smarter than me on these issues. What, uh, do, you, do you have a firm view one way or the other? Uh, look, I, I don't have a firm view right now, but I think there are a number of considerations that should guide this conversation. So you're right. We have this emergencies law. It's, in fact, we have two federal emergencies laws that are probably relevant here. One's called the Emergency Management Act, and the one that you're speaking of is called the Emergencies Act. Now, just, just to situate our conversation here, the Emergency Management Act is invoked all the time. Exactly. So wildfires, floods, snowstorms, uh, th things that uh, prompt provinces to declare their own states of emergency. The Emergency Management Act at the federal level is, is used by the Minister of Public Safety with Cabinet Blessing to funnel money to the provinces. Yeah. Uh, and so that's very commonplace. And in fact, I, I would ex expect now, as you mentioned, now the provinces are declaring their own emergencies or public health emergencies under the public health law that will see money flowing to the provinces through that that mechanism. What you're talking about is quite dis distinct, though, the, the Emergencies Act. And it's a statute that dates from 1988. And you're right, it repealed the War Measures Act, which most of your listeners will be familiar with, not just for the, the October crisis of 1970, but also the War Measures Act was used to detain Japanese Canadians in the Second World War in internment camps. Uh, now, of course, a long checkered history, the War Measures Act was was famous for being largely unconstrained, shall we say, that it basically, Parliament basically told the executive, do whatever you want exactly. uh, if you invoke one of these emergencies. The Emergencies Act was designed to uh, address that, that lack of discipline in the War Measures Act. And also it was 1988, right? We're four years past the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Um, and so it, it's designed in, in a way that accommodates civil liberties. And basically when you have an emergencies law, it needs to do three things. It needs to set criteria as to when you can trigger an emergency. It needs to then enumerate the powers that a government has during that emergency, and it needs to turn off the emergency, right? Um, and, and one of the problems is there are a lot of countries in this world that have emergencies laws, and they've triggered them, and they've never turned them off, right? So you need some sort of sunsetting provision. You need all those elements on top of some robust checks and balances to make this work. Now, so what the emergencies law does need, and, I, and I'll stop at this point, is it enumerates a number of different emergencies, 
the one that we're talking about right now is a public welfare emergency. Exactly. That's the only one that could possibly apply. And so if you it, look at the list of powers associated with the public welfare emergency, and we can talk about the criteria for that if you want, it's a closed list. Yep. It's a finite closed list. And in response to your question, if you look at the element in that finite closed list, it's actually more closed and potentially more limiting than the powers that provinces have under either their emergencies laws or their public health laws. And every single province at this point has invoked either their emergency law or their public health law to impose uh, uh, very uh, unusual and quite uh, stern measures. So when you set out those categories, I, as someone who got in touch with you at first years ago because of C-51 out of a civil liberties concern, I do have concerns about the, the historical invocation of the War Measures Act and its impact on civil liberties. And yet when I read the, the Emergencies Act as it stands today, I see a specific definition that is required to invoke the emergency. I see, a, as you say, a closed list of powers. And then I see actually a number of, by the way, you're going to hear my kid in the background. I've got the, uh, one of the disadvantages of working from home. But uh, I also see procedural protections. So you in your chapter wrote, in the course of an emergency, the executive is strengthened at the expense of judicial and legislative branches. And yet I see in the Emergencies Act parliamentary supervision and rules about parliamentary supervision that are actually important and, and I think very useful and critical. So let's start with the first category, which is the definition. And you mentioned a public welfare emergency. And on my reading of the definition, an urgent and critical situation of a temporary nature that seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians and is of such proportions or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it, it seems clear to me that the COVID-19 pandemic falls squarely within the definition of a public welfare emergency in the course of this act. Is, is, is yes. that your view as well? Yeah, I, 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 I don't disagree. I, I, so first of all, you need two things have to happen. It has to be a national emergency. And you're right, it, it, to be a national emergency, it has to exceed the capacity of a province to deal with the matter. We're, we're concerned about federalism whenever we talk about these laws. Exactly. And I think it's quite clear that no one province at this point in Canada can can address uh, this uh, COVID-19 outbreak. So it exceeds the capacity of any one province. So it's a national emergency. And it, all, it clearly deals with disease in human beings. Uh, and that, res that may result in danger to life or social, social disruption uh, of a sort that's of a sufficient gravity to amount to a national emergency. So I, we're over the definitional hurdle. Exactly. I, I don't think there's any legal bar to it being invoked by the federal government. I, the question, I think the underlying question, and I don't have the answer to this, uh, is the powers that then flow or the powers that then flow to the federal government upon the declaration, do they add value to what the provinces already are entitled and empowered to do under their own laws? Uh, and I think the, the answer probably is legally no. Uh, I think all the provinces and territories have as much, if not more, powers under their emergencies laws and their public health laws. The, the, the larger question is, notwithstanding the legal question, are there operational reasons why this should be federalized? And, and I'm just not privy 
uh, to the you know the cold face of this, and I can't answer whether the level of coordination or lack of coordination at this point, if that's a problem, uh, if that lack of coordination is is sufficient to justify a federalization of this right now. Uh, you know, the, the, there is inconsistency across the country in terms of the nature of the measures being imposed. Yeah. Now, whether those measures reflect local conditions or whether it should be a one-shoe-fits-all sort of lockdown, if you will, of the entire country, I don't know. But if we're into 18 months of this, uh, there's going to have to be some granularity, right? You can't turn off the whole country for 18 months. Exactly. And it's interesting. So I think the, we're over the definitional hurdle and we're over whether it can be invoked. We're into the question of whether it is useful and effective to invoke it for the federal government over and above what provinces are able to do. Now, which takes us to the powers. And you mentioned lockdown, and, and let's, that's the first power. So the first power under the act says the federal government by invoking an emergency can impose travel restrictions. And when you couple that with the ability to impose fines for failing to abide by an order or regulation of the governor, uh, the, the cabinet, the government, it, you, you have a lockdown potential uh, that the federal government could order. Let's, that is the first power on the docket, but let's bracket that one for the time being, because there are other powers that I think might be useful right away. And, and the first one that I, that I would turn to would be authorize and make emergency payments. So we have tomorrow parliament resuming to pass immediate emergency legislation to get some benefits out the door. In the course of addressing the economic uncertainty and the economic fallout and negative economic fallout associated with this pandemic and, and public welfare emergency, it does strike me as more efficient and effective for the government to have, whether or not they end up using the power, but to have the power latent to say where necessary, we're able to immediately distribute and authorize payments without going to parliament to go through that immediate emergency legislation process each and every time. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it, the, so the juxtaposition uh, is the UK. The UK, which does have a civil emergencies law, instead has gone to Parliament and is enacting a 350-odd-page-long piece of emergency legislation tailored to uh, any number of, of issues surrounding COVID-19, uh, not just the sort of things like lockdown that we were mentioning, but also the sort of economic uh, fallout. Yeah issues that you've been describing. So uh, your, your, your point is that under what's here, this is paragraph F, if people are following along of 8.1 yep. of the Emergencies Act, you could authorize the equivalent of emergency payments. Uh, well, whether that be most efficient under the Emergencies Act or whether it be more efficient, it seems to be happening in Canada to enact special legislation um, is, I guess, an open question, right? So um, my own view, look, Parliament can move fast, as you know better than I, when it wants to. I mean, it can pass a piece of legislation and we can have royal set in an afternoon yep. if, uh, if Parliament turns its mind to it. Uh, the problem with the Emergencies Act, perhaps, is that, look, if you, use, if you issue an order under the Emergencies Act, uh, it's going to sunset. It's going to sunset, maximum sunset uh, period for uh, public welfare emergencies, 90 days. Yep. Uh, so then you got to renew it. And as you renew it, you got to go through the same sort of procedures that uh, are required every time you, you resuscitate an emergency. Uh, and then there's, uh, there's some, as you mentioned, there's some review and, and back-end scrutiny by Parliament that's associated with every order that's issued. I'm not sure that less parliamentary time is spent on an invocation of the Emergencies Act given that the actual invocation must then be reviewed uh, by Parliament within seven days, and any order issued under the Emergencies Act must be reviewed by Parliament within uh, two days. I'm not sure that less parliamentary time would be consumed doing it that way than it would be to enact 
uh, legislation, you know, that goes yeah. through its, you know, three readings in, in both houses and to, and to the... Uh, Whereas, see, I had a different view of this when you, and this gets a bit legalistic in some ways, but the act does provide, as you say, so every time the government, in, first when the government invokes and, and tables a motion to invoke a public welfare emergency, within seven days that has to be, that motion has to be tabled in parliament and yeah. debated uh, on an urgent basis uh, and then come to a vote. Then there's a 90 day sunset period. And so at some point the government, if it wants to extend, they'll have to bring a motion to extend and then that will be tabled in parliament again. So there's some parliamentary scrutiny. Uh, interestingly, there is a provision, as you say, every time uh, an order or regulation is made by the government, Max very interested in this conversation as well, but every time you, you make an order or regulation as government, uh, it's tabled and there's a, a few days that it has to be dealt with in parliament, except you can amend the Statutory Instruments Act to exempt that, in which case it would be a parliamentary review committee made up of both houses that could review those orders in council. And my own view is that that would be not only the most efficient way of doing it, but it would actually provide the most scrutiny because rather than a general debate in parliament, uh, which in my experience doesn't lend itself to great scrutiny, you would have a parliamentary a committee made up of both houses that could meet virtually because they're more flexible in, in, the, in uh, their procedures and they could on a regular basis meet in secret and meet virtually to discuss and, and hold the government's orders uh, to account uh, and, and subject them to greater scrutiny. And so I think it could be done in such a way that it would provide greater efficiency. So you wouldn't have to table in the house each time. You'd have to refer them to committee, but it would also provide greater parliamentary supervision because the committee actually functions with greater supervisory oversight than I think the house does fundamentally. I, I don't know if you have thought that one through, but that was, that was my, my own personal view based on my, you know, my somewhat limited parliamentary experience, but some parliamentary experience today. Yeah. I, so what worries me a little bit about the parliamentary review committee and keep in mind the emergencies act was really designed for political emergencies, not so much health emergencies, right? Because sure. that was our recent experience. So the Parliamentary Review Committee meets behind closed doors and has an oath of secrecy. Yep. So whatever the Parliamentary Review Committee is doing is not transparent to the public. Um, and so I, I'm a little bit concerned that in an emergency situation, we gravitate quickly towards a lack of transparency and uh, a non-disclosure of a sort that might be important in a political emergency. Right. If we're dealing with a war, for example, right. but probably are not helpful at all to the cause in a public welfare emergency. Right. As best we can, I think we have to maintain our democratic system of governance and, and the regular operating of our institutions. In fact, I'm quite concerned that Parliament isn't sitting, right? And so the British Parliament sat throughout the Second World War, and, and yet our Parliament is not sitting. Uh, whether Parliament can sit physically and maintain social distancing, of course, is an open question. Probably not. But it's, it's not with a full house, but with a partially full, with a part, you know, with a partial house and reduced quorum potentially. Sure, and why not get on Zoom, right? I don't really care where the mace is. Um, exactly. Uh, in terms of uh, calling the house into session, I think it's very important for the public to see that our our uh, our, our means of governance remain intact. That's especially important, it seems to me, if we're going to federalize this and call it an emergency. So I, I'm really concerned. My, I guess my my concern would be: look, uh, if we're going to invoke an emergency, uh, then we really need to have a robust parliamentary presence. Uh, so that it, with the hindsight of time, when we look back, we can say, look, the checks and balances were there. I don't know if I would want to invoke emergency and move right away to a body that's going to be operating in secret.
Though that body can, especially in a minority parliament, maybe some comfort, but that body can revoke and amend orders made by the government. So while they may sure. be, but it's not but just deliberations are in secret. It, agreed, agreed. Which, which, which yeah. uh, may you know maybe ought to be amended as far as it goes in the course of this, uh, and maybe with unanimous consent, consent of the committee, uh, maybe could be. Um, there are procedural issues potentially with parliament meeting. Although I, you know, uh, I was going to get to this a little later, but we could suspend the standing orders as a parliament and we could meet in different ways. I mean, it's, we are the masters of our own house. And if there's an agreement among all parties, we could certainly suspend the regular standing orders and have debates from the comfort of my own home and in the way that we're discussing right now, whether you get one of those artificial backdrops too, to make it look like you're actually still in the house. <laughs> yeah. Not just my kitchen. Uh, so <laughs> to get back to the power. So I, I do think the authorization and the making of emergency payments, and I'll use non-EI, but related benefits as an example. People talked about a, a universal basic income in the course of, and some countries are paying citizens directly by way of check. We propose this emergency support benefit for gig workers and others, self-employed individuals who are not eligible for EI. That, to the extent that requires a whole separate legislative scheme, that's of some concern to me if it's gonna slow the process down versus getting dollars out the door in a more immediate way, in which case having the ability for cabinet to say, we're authorizing and making these emergency payments in some immediate way by virtue of the Emergencies Act is, um, is appealing to me. And let's go through some of the other powers. So uh, before we get to travel restrictions, a really useful one potentially is the ability to requisition, use, and dispose of, of property in a very general way. And, and I wonder what you think about one, and let's, uh, we can talk about the privacy concerns, but we, certain companies in our society, big tech companies, uh, smartphone related companies, take your Google, uh, Facebook, that geolocate individuals on a regular basis. If we know that certain, as soon as someone is diagnosed with COVID-19, we do have the technical capacity to trace to to backtrace all of their steps and who they've come into contact with, and then to make sure that any individual that has come into contact with that person diagnosed are then mandated to self isolate. As an example, that 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 is property of a company at the moment. That is technology that exists. It would presumably be be useful in the course of this crisis. And the power under the Emergencies Act would would allow the federal government. To, to do so in a, in a fairly immediate way. So there are, and that's one. How do you get of, there though? Like, I, I'm not sure where, the, where in that list of factors in section eight, there's an override on privacy interests. Uh, well, it's, uh, you have to operate at all times within uh, the charter. And obviously section one gives you quite a bit of freedom, I would mm -hmm. say in the course of uh, pandemic. But uh, when it comes to the property of a company, I think you do have, which, which is what this information is, I think you would have the ability of a federal government to uh, say to Google, hand over the work with us, we're, we're going to order you to work with us and hand over the geolocation data, for example, which is the company's property also obviously invokes privacy interests. And we have to make sure that there's strong privacy oversight as far as how it's used. But that would be one, whether that's acceptable from a privacy standpoint, but it would be a power related to property that, that could be invoked by way of the, the Emergencies Act. Another one, for example, would be when we look at a recent announcement, a fairly soft one 
about working with companies to retool industry to advance testing supplies and medical supplies. Uh, I've read from a professor at the Rotman School of Management to say this is a wartime, this requires wartime efforts, it requires centralized efforts. Capitalism and the market is efficient, but we need speed at the moment. And so we should be pushing industry and ordering industry uh, in a more forceful way to build the supplies that we need. And again, the Emergencies Act would allow for us to do that. Even before we get to lockdown or restrictions, there may be other useful measures here that the provinces are not currently undertaking. Yeah, so I think the provinces have the power to do that. This question is your point, which is, that are they doing it and can they do it efficiently without competing exactly. one with the other? Exactly. Um, and yeah, I think that's a valid point. I mean, I wouldn't also forget about the Defense Production Act, which most people don't know about. Section 15 of the Defense Production Act does allow the minister to stockpile um, and make orders of the private sector. I don't think it's ever been used. I have no idea how to interpret it, but it's there. And I, yeah, I, re I read that because I, I saw other people mentioning it. I read it and I don't think it would apply to a situation like this. Where, not. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it would Although apply it's for the in a wartime context. Right? Well, yes, it, most of the references in the Defense Production Act are to defense supplies. Yeah, exactly. And Section 15, it talks about the need of the community, which is, is different terminology. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, think, I think you're right, Nate. I mean, I think there's some latitude here. I certainly think there's probably latitude under the Emergencies Act to compel production of various sorts, uh, if need be. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little... I'm, I'm a little, I'm going to be agnostic on the privacy issues. Sure. I have to say that if you're going to get into the sort of complicated issues that are raised by uh, tracking apps and the like, which do raise important charter issues, oh, big time. I think you're Other probably questions? looking there at spe specialized uh, legislation. And again, I think Parliament can move quickly if it needs to. Needs to. I'm a bit reluctant to see this done on the Emergencies Act. You maybe have more faith we're in the ability of Parliament to move quickly than I do. <laughs> Well, you know, it's not un it's not unknown, right, for not stuff unknown. to go through in an afternoon, right? Um, the 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 thing is, is it is it more complex, any more complex to go through an afternoon in Parliament than it is to draft uh, all these regulations? Because uh, the text would have to be there, right? Whether you call it a, an order under the Emergencies Act or a piece of legislation, you still got to draft the text. Um, That's right. And the, the issue then is, what process do you follow? Do you make it an executive instrument under the Emergencies Act, or do you go through Parliament? Um, uh, you know, the, the more we trench on civil liberties, the closer we get to that, that point where, you know, the War Measures Act experience starts to grate. Uh, in some European jurisdictions, in terms of these apps, I'm seeing uh, some instances of people creating these apps and it's by consent, right? You download it yep. on your app and you consent to not just monitoring your own motion, but the motion of others. And you yep. get a little notification that you've been in proximity to someone who's been tested positive, et cetera. Uh, so there, there may be other ways of getting at this. Um, until someone's got the technology in place and has thought through how this is going to work, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's very difficult to imagine how the, the law will play out. What about even, so uh, I had a list of potential measures that could be useful over and above before we even get to uh, travel restrictions and a lockdown, which is on most people's mind, I think. But uh, when it comes to, say, foreign healthcare workers who are not um, authorized yet as of the rules that we currently operate under to provide services, yeah. we could we could put all of the potential health resources, again, directing people to provide essential services is uh, a power that resides in the Emergencies Act. And we could say everyone with a medical background, regardless of the country that you're from, regardless of the, um, uh, the domestic um, education you have, if you have an, an education and an, ex, and, uh, an expertise where we're, we're putting you to work. And it would be, I think, through the, well, it, maybe there's provincial legislation that would allow, or provincial emergency powers that would allow this to happen as well. But. There is. 
right? So again, there's analogs at the provincial level. So I think what you're talking about is, is shuffling resources across the country, uh, where otherwise there's gaps because of right, the, exactly. the provincial regimes. Yeah, exactly. Well, that and bringing people into service who are not yet in service because our current rules preclude them from uh, from operating as health professionals today. Uh, so it does seem to me there are some useful pieces to the emergencies act even before we get to the lockdown but because most of the questions i have received are about why you know one why are we not declaring a national emergency which i think in and of itself is maybe a useful just to elevate in people's minds the importance of this but even if regulations aren't promulgated but uh, most people's question then says you you you've made it voluntary to socially distance you've indicated and made people acknowledge that they have to self-isolate when they're coming home by way of the the on-screen app uh, when they come back through the airport but there's no requirement that anyone follow these rules and voluntary measures aren't enough we've certainly seen a number of health professionals write to say i just had a local doctor on cbc this weekend saying this is world war three and we need to lock things down and yes provinces have the ability to do so we obviously saw uh, and, and some municipalities I see are, are debating fines through bylaws for a failure to socially distance. Nova Scotia just put rules in place to say there's gonna be a fine if people are within two meters of one another in public places. Is there, again, not value, and maybe we aren't there yet, but is there not value in declaring a national emergency today and giving ourselves the ability to then uh, make orders quickly should, it, should, should they be necessary? Sorry, Nate. You, you, I, we had another drop out there. This is this is the internet is failing us today. The challenges. The last of the uh, thirty seconds there. Yeah. Is just the is there uh, is there not value in having a declaration of a national emergency and then having the ability to make orders to restrict travel as necessary to mandate that people self isolate to mandate social distancing in a more serious way uh, if we don't see voluntary measures working, I suppose, in the end to flatten the curve. And is that not, some provinces are putting these rules in place, but again, not having that uniformity may, may be an issue, if, if certainly if some provinces are, are not acting. And so is there not value in at least having the declaration of a national emergency and then the ability to make orders if we see the voluntary measures and provincial measures falling short? I can't really answer that. I mean, so again, it's a question of operations versus law. I mean, legally speaking, the provinces have all the powers that they need yeah. uh, in terms of, of locking down uh, their their provinces. Uh, they have differential standards right now. It's quite clear that the standards yeah. vary from province to province, but so too does the, the current situation vary yeah. from province to so if and neither you, follow, you or I have full information about. Neither of us have full exactly, information. I, exactly. we're, I'm not a. I'm not equipped to say what measures are necessary. Exactly. Um, you know the question of volunteerism. Uh, the provincial laws all have stiff fines um, and the potential in, in, of, of jail time for those who violate the, the, the orders. Realistically, are we talking about putting people in prison? Are we going to create mass uh, camps for people who violate social distancing rules? And, you know, isn't that contradictory? Exactly. At the end of the day, the, the, law, the law only gets you so far. I mean, we're, we're talking here about changing uh, a whole way of operating in an open society in terms of the expectations people have. And that's more a communication challenge than a legal challenge, it seems to me. Uh, and you know, at some point, it, the more the more you turn the screw, screws, the, the more likely it is that you'll have blowback, right? So, yep. it, are you going to really turn the screws to the point that you raise all sorts of really concerning civil liberties interests 
uh, to the point where people begin to believe that the real peril isn't isn't the disease but the state. Uh, you know, there's this is this is not an easy issue, uh, and so to invoke a, an emergency and then say we're just we're going to bring the hammer down probably isn't going to work very well. Um, I, I think the, the bigger issue now logistically is constant communication uh, and and sort of rising above the churn of misinformation that's there, there uh, and getting to low information uh, individuals who really have not been paying attention on a dime. Um, and I'm especially skeptical about a federal law that overlaps with laws that already exist at the provincial level and assuming that things will be better if we federalize. So uh, I, as I say, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really sure whether uh, we should federalize this at this point. We certainly have with quarantine, right? So for travelers, the quarantine act is, is the tool we've been using and it's quite a, an effective tool yep. for internal matters. I guess I need to be persuaded that the provinces aren't stepping to the plate adequately. Yeah, I guess I have not seen. So if I'm thinking of the issues that uh, have worked in other countries and our actions have been significant to date, but I see a scale up of testing as an example, we are sealing a scale up of testing, but I also see locally, I see challenges with supply and there's obviously significant triaging that is happening because of a lack of supplies. And I do think that we are slow on the industry side to force industry to retool to get us the supplies that we need in a domestic way. I see on just nasal swabs as an example, but I know there are other elements that go into the testing kits, but I see a facility in Northern Italy and a facility in Maine that the world are reliant, is really relying upon two facilities. And these nasal swabs are not, they don't require a great degree of technical expertise to build. They do require obviously facilities and uh, manufacturing capabilities that we, we don't, we can't just create tomorrow, but we could create in the coming weeks. And so I, I do wonder a little bit about the speed at which that is happening and if the federal government could push that forward in a more serious way, which I, I think we probably could through the Emergencies Act. Um, I also wonder about the tracing and testing. So yes, we're doing a good job, I think, when it comes to, or the Quarantine Act provides sufficient powers when it comes to incoming travelers. I wonder, though, if we aren't doing enough of a job uh, testing and then tracing community spread. And that obviously is a significant concern. Um, I haven't seen other than I've read Andre Picard talk about transparency and the numbers of community spread. And I think he's probably right that we need greater transparency here. But when it comes to ensuring that people who have come into contact with someone who is diagnosed, that they are themselves self-isolating. We don't have rules that would help push that forward, I don't think provincially yet. Uh, so I, I, I take your point though, which is the, the law is there, the definition is there for, we, we can use this law legally, but operationally it's not clear yet based on the information you have and that I have, as to whether the gaps need to be filled by the federal government yet. Uh, I, I, mean, I think you're right, uh, Nate, that it, right now, again, it's an operational versus legal issue. The operational issues are the most important. Uh, even if uh, the federal government federalized this using the Emergencies Act, keep in mind that the Emergencies Act on its own terms says that it doesn't, it doesn't trump uh, other provincial measures that may be right. taken. You're not going to get away from the need to coordinate. Yeah, and you so can't unduly impair. I had this idea in my head initially because provinces haven't taken any measures on rent control, for example, and the, the mm -hmm. single biggest payment that small businesses and individuals face that is going to be the crux of their problems financially in the coming months is rent. 
And while the Emergencies Act in some ways would allow us to deal with this by way of disposition and requisition and use of property provision potentially, uh, there's also sections eight sub three that says we can't unduly impair the ability of provinces to address the problem. And so where something is so uniquely within provincial jurisdiction, it's not as clear that we can just completely take those powers away from the province and deal with it in a federal way. Yeah. And, and maybe la one last point here, Nate, uh, is I've seen some people say, well, we need the Emergencies Act so that we can we could tap the resources of the Canadian Armed Forces. No, absolutely not. Right? No, the yeah. National Defense Act has right. its public service provisions, which do not require an emergency. And, and in fact, uh, public service by the military in terms of wildfires, floods, uh, snowstorms most recently in Newfoundland are used all the time. And there's actually a standing operation, Operation Lentis, for disaster relief by the Canadian Armed Forces. You don't need the Emergencies Act if you want to rely upon the Armed Forces for purpose of supporting civilian authorities. Nor, frankly, do you need them if you needed them to support right. law enforcement, which right. generally is not a great idea, by the way. I mean, it's not, the military does not want to get into the job of policing uh, Canadians. That's not their task, nor are they trained for that. Of course. And I, I uh, one last note, I mean, uh, I, I think we're in full agreement on suspending the standing orders of Parliament so that Parliament can meet and continue to debate these issues and continue to provide the uh, supervisory function and the accountability function for government action. I, I do, if we aren't to suspend the standing orders, I do actually think, I take your point about in secrecy and, and I would be, I would welcome a change to a, a parliamentary review committee, but if we aren't to suspend the standing orders of the house, so the house is not set to meet on a regular basis, I, I would, I, I think it would be a good idea to have a, a parliamentary review committee that is overseeing federal government's actions on a more regular basis and meeting by virtue of Zoom and, and bringing people like yourself before them potentially. Uh, I probably, uh, I would put myself in the camp and I recognize operational questions are a, a little bit unknown to both of us. I, I, still, I still lean to, as a matter of setting norms and changing behavior, the mere invocation of Emergencies Act by a federal government in a public facing way sets a particular tone even before we promulgate any orders or regulations. And then I do think that it allows us, there's a, a latency, uh, a latent set of powers that allows us to then act quickly should the need arise. So I, I, I'm, I think there's an open question as to what orders should be made under it in, a, in, a, in the future, but I, I still lean to thinking invoking it is a good idea and setting the table for acting should it become necessary, taking your point that we don't maybe have clear evidence yet that in, that orders from the federal government are necessary sitting here today. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I have a view on that. I mean, so once, once you vote it, you got to have parliament debate that within seven days, uh, yeah. then you can keep it going for 90 days yeah. until it expires. So, so maybe it's about social messaging and, and laying down a marker, yeah. even if you don't issue an order under it. Um, I, I, I've not really considered that. I'm sort of agnostic on that. As a, um, well, that's really helpful. And, and uh, um, it, it's also been helpful just to go through the nuts and bolts of procedural protections because uh, it is, there, are, is a, there is a lot of protection here in a way that the War Measures Act did not provide for when it comes to requiring that provinces are consulted with, requiring a tabling in the House and a debate that it sunsets after 90 days, that there either be continued debates in Parliament for every order or a review from both chambers by virtue of a review committee. And so um, I think 
the justice minister will, will have to continue to, and, and the prime minister, I mean, the cabinet's gonna have to continue to continue, keep this under active consideration, um, knowing that the law allows us to move forward with it, but operational concerns uh, then become paramount in determining whether we, whether we do so. Um, thanks, Greg. Thanks, Nate.